This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to journalist Dylan Bador. He's going to be speaking to us about the brutal clashes that took place recently in Colombia. People went out onto the streets to protest a new tax reform situation and in turn they were shot at and killed often by the police and what looked to be possible auxiliaries. Dylan's going to explain it all to us. He lives and works in Colombia. If you like what we're doing, please support us at patreon.com slash popular front. So basically we've seen in the last week or so, there've been all these clashes uh, in Colombia. It looks like at one point there was even like what people are calling basically police death squads, like kind of driving around. And I think in some instances, even using live rounds on unarmed protesters. I want to go into all of that. But first of all, maybe let's go back a bit and just kind of talk about why these uh, new protests started, this recent round of tax reform bill protests. What's that all about? So to give you some context, let's back up to 2019, because the organizers of this um, protest movement, they call it the national strike. The first national strike was in 2019, and it was a big turnout uh, that had, you know, scuffled with police uh, and and um, some violence and injuries that obviously got uh, interrupted in 2020 by the pandemic. And when they announced the second national strike uh, in April 28th of this year, there was a lot of anticipation uh, to see how things would turn out if it would uh, turn out to be as big as um, the kind of groundbreaking protests of 2019. Spoiler alert, it turned out to be bigger. So uh, what were some of the draws that got people out there? As you mentioned, it was initially focused really on this tax reform law um, that President Ivan Duque um, proposed and submitted to the Congress which was widely interpreted as uh, taking more from the poorest Colombians, um, which is to say the, you know, most of them, to pay for deficits that were incurred as a result of the COVID pandemic. Now, in the um, 14 or so days since then, the protests have um, spiraled some might say out of control, uh, to address a, a much wider range of grievances. And now we generally just consider them anti-government protests, uh, not in an anarchist sense, but uh, just broad opposition um, to the government. And many of these grievances are historical grievances that go back um, before the tax reform law to the protests of 2019, and uh, most of them go back to the civil war that that spanned, uh, you know, three or four generations in Colombia and did involve the Colombian state um, fighting insurgencies uh, in its own territory, which it continues to do. So does this have anything to do with the clashes then between the government and, say, like, fuck guerrillas in the jungles or are those those two things separate? It does have to do with that. Um, and that's a complicated issue. So let's say first on one hand, which some listeners may have heard, 
The government of Colombia will regularly um, allege that the guerrillas and the insurgencies are part of the protest movement and have an influence on the front lines. While this is likely true to a small extent, it's certainly not true to the extent uh, that the government alleges that it is. And this is a very common allegation for the state to make when protests like this erupt. Second point, it has to do with that fighting in the sense that Colombians were um, in many ways, there was an idea that this conflict was ending in 2016. And with this landmark peace accord between the government and the FARC, uh, and that this, you know, world famous civil war was going to be put behind them. The FARC is now demobilized mostly, but in the years since 2016, the Colombian government continues um, combat, um, you know, ferrying soldiers on helicopters, using artillery, uh, using airstrikes, um, troop deployments in rural areas in the jungle. This has gone on consistently since 2016 with a myriad of other groups uh, besides the FARC. And, um, you know, it's not uh, a normal state of existence for a country to be permanently fighting insurgencies within its territory. And there is a decent amount of indignation that has uh, erupted and slowly grown, in fact, as a result of the Colombian state's role um, in the Civil War. To be more specific, when we talk about those clashes, you know, there are a a few news stories that come to mind from the past two years. There's two instances when Colombian military airstrikes uh, were documented as as killing a a good handful of of children Mm. who were there with the insurgency. um, uh, Who knows exactly under what conditions, uh, probably as child combatants. But uh, that that caused a lot of indignation. And then there were big reports a few years ago that the military was trying to return to these really dark days of of uh, body count combat metrics that um, judged commanders on the number of enemy fatalities, which was interpreted as as encouraging um, battalions to kill as many people as possible. Um, And that was, again, very unsettling to Colombians who liked to believe that they were moving beyond the Civil War. At the same time, the military is is um, is seen to have this kind of role. A, a huge trend in Colombia is the killing of social leaders, of community activists, of community leaders uh, who get assassinated in the streets, in their homes, in their cars, and nobody ever uh, finds out who, who did it. And in many cases, the the, the paid hitmen are, um, they don't even know who's paying them to do it. Um, so there, there's a lot of anger at that fact that it appears that the Colombian state continues to be at war, uh, continues to fight people in its own country, uh, yet it, it has not succeeded in providing that peace to the actual communities of Colombia, uh, to the social leaders who seem to have the best interest of the people in mind, so that creates a big feeling that, that this state uh, does not act on on the behalf of, of the population or for the well-being of the population. Right. So obviously that all kind of trickles down. Um, when these uh, tax reform protests started, um, maybe just explain to us, like, how did those form? Was it a specific group or was it like a grassroots kind of outrage? Like, how did they take place? 
So as I said, there were um, big, the, the predecessor of this protest movement was the National Strike of 2019. That was organized by the Strike Committee, which is a, um, yeah, a committee of, of labor groups and labor interests. And that is uh, the real entity that calls the initial shots. Um, surrounding that, it, it's largely organic. Um, I mean, the, the strike committee can call things and they can mobilize their trade unions and stuff like that. But the people turn out themselves. The student groups turn out a lot of people. Indigenous communities and indigenous uh, leaders turn out a lot of people. Yeah, so um, I was keeping an eye on it, and it looked like generally it was pretty peaceful at the start. It was a bit rowdy, but from what it looked like, you know, people were peaceful on the streets. And then suddenly it just kind of turned, right? How did that happen? How did it go into this kind of extreme violence that we're seeing right now? Going back to the first day of this of this protest, um, there was a lot of question uh, uncertainty hanging in the air over how substantial this would turn out to be. Um, on the first day, it became clear that it was a very large turnout. And by uh, early early that afternoon or late that afternoon, violence erupted with riot police um, firing tear gas with protesters uh, building barricades, throwing rocks, um, vandalism. I- I'm not I don't recall in which day the first demonstrator fatalities were reported, but when it became clear and when information spread that police had hurt people and had killed people uh, as a result of this demonstration, that's when things really took off and the momentum started growing. And that is about the point where it grew beyond the specific tax reform law. In fact, only a few days after the first protest uh, erupted in violence, the president, Duque, withdrew the tax reform law and the finance minister resigned uh, apparently in an attempt to quell the unrest uh, but it just kept going from there and it's hard to put a finger on exactly what is the cause of of so much violence because this is happening in multiple cities all at once um i believe there have been deaths reported in bogota in cali in mm. Pereira, and in medellin and not all of these are from police. In fact, um, some of them have been attributed to some criminal uh, interests or elements, and they don't know who really who who showed up and shot the people. Uh, some protesters have died accidentally um, from police, uh, either run over by um, armored vehicles or perhaps hit in the head by a tear gas canister or flashbang grenades. And it does appear that some protesters have died um, due to live ammunition uh, fired fired by police. Yeah, well, that's what I wanted to, to ask you about. I mean, I've had a lot of people from Colombia, some people I even know, sending me videos and they're saying, look, these are fucking death squads. And I was like, oh, come on. And then I looked at it and it's like, well, I don't know what else you would call them. There are police, some videos where police, two on a motorcycle, one drives by, like one guy is just kind of stood there and they just shoot at him. There's one where, you know, it was edited funny and he, you know, the guy was just hit with a tear gas grenade. But then there are others where these, they've literally shot live rounds and have killed people seemingly just, you know, for just being at the protest site. Um, what, what do you make of it? What are they up to, the police there? So uh, I will give you a bit of context on this before I dr- address those certain points, because there's a lot of uncertainty on those certain points, and I haven't witnessed them. But 
the Colombian government as being a, a, a player in the civil war has a long and dark history of killing its people. Um, some of the darkest chapters of this story include what they call the false positives, where Colombian military commanders um, dressed up civilians uh, as as guerrillas and killed them to get credit for for um, fatalities on the battlefield. And I just say this to, to mean to, to express that this is part of the relationship between Colombians and their government, and it's part of the nature of a country at war. So when these kinds of things happen and are reported, there is not exactly the period of calm um, and investigation mm. um, and inspection that would happen uh, in a nation where people would want to figure out what this is. There's more of a feeling of, oh boy, they're at it again. Um, let's let's get out and fight them. Um, so all I can say about the protests now, it's clear that protesters have died the, the, uh, from, from police fire. Uh, it's clear in other cases that police have stood by while individuals fired into protest crowds. Um, and, you know, other than that, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I would say the pretty, pretty uh, standard story of, of brutal treatment um, and and repression. Um, and, and honestly, you know, this stuff um, goes on, goes on a, a good deal uh, behind the scenes when there are, are not protests. You know, uh, I'm from the United States and whatever indignation and reactions that we have uh, when law enforcement kills civilians, that kind of stuff is is sort of always burning on the background um, in Colombia, and uh, I think people are at, at this point. There's been an outburst of kind of we're we are totally fed up with this. Yeah, and and kind of I mean it, it's interested interesting to me that you mentioned there that like there's footage uh, I've seen some of it as well where police are kind of standing by and letting other groups fire into protesters. Um, there is a kind of history, right, in Colombia of, like, auxiliaries, government paramilitaries, that sort of thing. Yeah, completely. And, and that's another bit of context uh, that's important to include is that when, when Colombians see these videos of police allowing, you know, seemingly random people to fire into protest crowds, it invokes this whole history of the paramilitary death squads, which were sort of uh, shady anonymous uh, groups and individuals um, with explicit um, cooperation from government um, it, who who defended the interests of the state and of um, big businesses. And the government would say defended the interests of the peace and the economy. Uh, and um, that was another thing that Colombians were really eager to believe was behind them. And um, even though plenty of events in the last years have, have revealed that it was not behind them, uh, this is this is where it's getting by far the most attention. And, and that that really pisses people off. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, and what do you think is going to happen next? I've, I've heard... You know, people online are saying, oh, we're going to fight back. And I'm aware that there are quite a lot of weapons in the country. Um, do you think it's going to get to that level yet where people kind of form like, I don't know, a civil defense or what? Like, what do you think is going to happen right now? I don't know what's going to happen. And nobody, I think people have stopped guessing and everyone is kind of holding their breath a little while because the possibility of 
civil conflict developing in Colombia is not remote in any sense, uh, nor is it hard to imagine. The, com- the country is already, um, you know, rife with armed groups who, who benefit from the, ex- the export of drugs to the United States and Europe. Um, will we see urban insurgencies like, like we saw in Colombia 30 years ago? Um, that's the big, that's the big question. Um, and, you know, I I wouldn't be able to lean one way or the other, which is a kind of, I think, disturbing indication of, of how non-remote that possibility is, um, particularly in the city of Cali, which has been the epicenter of violence and which has been the source of this famous videos of police apparently allowing people to fire into protest crowds where indigenous groups have shown up uh, in large buses and have scuffled with other civilians and apparently counter-protesters in Cali. I bring this up because Cali is the center of a region that's called the Cauca Valley. And the Cauca Valley is uh, one of the country's prime cocaine producing regions. Mm. And it is one of the hotbeds for uh, armed groups and illegal groups so it's a region that has experience with insurgency, has experience with paramilitarism, uh, has experience with uh, assassinated social leaders on a regular basis, has a lot of money and weaponry injected through the drug trade. It's a very volatile situation, and it's not hard to imagine how in that area this could continue to to develop and descend. Yeah, it doesn't sound good. Um, we spoke a little bit about this this insane situation where the government wanted to, you know, take money from people with less money to pay for this, that, and the other. Um, I know there's a lot of corruption going on in the country. Maybe you can just talk a little bit about the kind of issues that you know your standard working class man and woman are facing from the government in Colombia. A bit of context on this one, also. To understand the relationship that a Colombian has uh, with their government, it's historically it's not the same like us in the United States uh, or in the UK. Colombia as a country evolved out of the Spanish Empire and the government came out of the Hacienda system where wealthy families owned huge tracts of land. We're talking about the size of states and uh, employed basically everyone uh, under them. And in many ways, that system has continued up uh, to this day. The relationship that a Colombian has with their government is is a little bit more like with the landlord um, than with your your steward or your teacher, or however we would um, want to imagine the, our government as a public service. Um, you know, the Colombian presidency it's it's often often said it in that country has been handed. Uh, on among the same approximately one dozen families um, since the start of the country. So what what lower class Colombians see is that the government is seldom present in their lives. Um, For the poorest of the poor we're talking about, they build their own houses and their own roads and they climb the electrical poles and run wire there and they find a way to get uh, water and they they organize their community in ways to protect themselves. Uh, the police or the government, I'm sorry, is many ways evident mostly in the police and the military, um, who, as I said before, with the killing of social leaders, there's widespread feeling that these security forces are not working in the effective or efficient service 
of the Colombian population. And in addition to that, the Colombian looks at the government in this country where poverty is widespread and sees that every member of the government is extremely wealthy um, by national standards. Uh, and it does, you know, in many ways appear to them that this state is a conglomeration of people who tax them um, to build wealth, uh, to build personal wealth. And ha within that wealth that uh, gets siphoned off through corruption, there is the ability to fix many basic problems um, in the country, and it's simply not done. Uh, and as I said before, this is a this is a, a historic uh, quality of the government here. And the, the the disappointment that that didn't change with this earth shattering peak process of 2016 mm -hmm. that that's what really fuels a lot of a lot of rage. Right, and sorry, just to go back to the to the gorillas once more. I know that a lot of the FARC have kind of formed these like offshoot versions of the previous group and are going back to war, as it were. Um, do you think that has like much of an impact on the situation in the cities? The the, the largest impact that that would have in the cities is that, as I said, it makes clear to Colombians that the war is not over, that it mm. never did. You know, the peace process was supposed to guarantee um, all these conditions to former combatants that, that was supposed to make civilian life the attractive alternative uh, to warfare. And I've spent time with a few of these communities of former guerrillas out in the jungle. And uh, Almost none of those promises uh, were returned on. You know, lots of former combatants found themselves facing this really tough reality of becoming a peasant farmer in the very distant jungle. Um, you know, trying to do backbreaking labor on poor daily nutrition uh, to grow crops that oftentimes had no markets and real no really no path to markets um, anyway. So. In that situation, being part of the drug trade and being an armed group um, can look like, you know, certainly a very attractive alternative to that life as a farmer, which I just described. Uh, and, you know, in an ideal system, the, the push and pull factors would uh, of, you know, all the negative aspects of warfare. It's not a pleasant thing to be involved in for these people. And it's mm -hmm. the life of hiding in very uh, unpleasant conditions out there in the countryside. If, if civilian life was, was uh, it was possible to thrive in that way, then theoretically that's what people would choose. And going back to the disappointment with the government, there's a widespread feeling that, that the resources are there to do what was said. I mean, some things in the peace accord the 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 largest single section of it was agrarian reform, which was supposed to build roads to the countryside, get schools to the countryside, help with economic stimulus programs to enable all these people who who depend on growing coca for their livelihood, give them alternatives. And in, in most cases, that that just simply was never done. And in my take, that would be, um, you know, the reason for the insurgencies. And Colombians don't want to have insurgencies. And when they see those there after all of these decades, they look at their state and they say, the state is theoretically the one who has the responsibility of building a peaceful country for us, not just killing the insurgents, but changing the conditions uh, that 
seem to make insurgency in this country perpetual. Um, so in the sense of the, the dissident FARC groups continuing to play an active role in combat, that's what Colombians see. They see that this is not how a country is supposed to be. We've tried the war, like we've tried whatever the standard approaches have been for all these decades, and it didn't work. And nobody in the state uh, is really pressing forward with bold leadership to do anything different. Yeah, it's like, you know, if, if you're going to so-called remove the problem, there has to be a path afterwards. It doesn't sound like they provided that. Um, if people want to follow your work or get in touch with you or whatever, um, where, where can they do that? You're on, you're on social media and that. Um, maybe just give us, you know, your addresses, your handles there. Yeah, sure. You can find me on Twitter at Dylan Badur. That's D-Y-L-A-N-B-A-D-D-O-U-R. Currently working in private intelligence, not publishing for the public, but I hope to be back at it sooner. Thank you, mate. Have a good day. That was journalist Dylan Bador speaking about the brutal situation in Colombia where the police and possibly even paramilitaries have been moving in and shooting and killing unarmed protesters who are basically just trying to say to the government, why the fuck are you taxing the poorest people when they already have a lot of the money themselves? It's a bad situation, as Dylan explained. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us on the Patreon for bonus content. We are grassroots, 100% independent. That is the only way we really keep going, the Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash popular front. You'll see a lot there, bonus episodes, narrated articles, access to the community discord, merchandise, discount codes a whole series on there called too cool for j school an educational thing there's so much there patreon.com slash popular front or you can buy our merchandise just go to popularfront.shop we have uh, t-shirts there hoodies bags all sorts it's not some teespring bullshit either it's all proper decent designs um well-made stuff go and check it out popularfront.shop if you want you can buy my book which is currently out now if you've bought it already thank you very much it's doing way better than i expected really do appreciate people buying that and reading it uh, and dropping the reviews um yeah you can buy my book just search jake hanrahan gargoyle in uh, amazon or just go to gargoylebook.com you'll see links this episode was sponsored by Oracle Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, USA. They're an independent coffee business uh, selling only fair trade products. See them at 3875 Southwest Bond Avenue 97239. The episode was also sponsored by Grindcore House, a pair of independent coffee shops in Philadelphia, USA, one in South, one in West. You can find them on social media at Grindcore House. The episode is also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and writing about historical conflict propaganda from all around the world. Buy prints at propagandopolis.com. Use promo code POPULARFRONT10 for 10% off. 
Uh, if you want to follow us, look for us on social media. Instagram, it's at popular.front, youtube.com slash popularfront. Uh, we're almost at 100,000 subscribers on the YouTube, so thanks very much to everybody. It's been taking, like, it took a while to get traction there um, for our documentaries and what have you, but now it's starting to move, despite all the fuckery and censorship and everything that YouTube does to us. But yeah, youtube.com slash popularfront. Twitter, uh, at popularfrontco. Go to the website, www.popularfront.co. Uh, if you want to follow me, it's at Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Uh, music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black. Check out his music at samblackpf.com. So samblackpopularfront.com. The uh, sound mixing was done by Thomas Griffin at Splicing Block. Uh, Definitely check them out. Just search for Splicing Block Podcast. Uh, Thank you very much to the higher tier Patreons. Uh, Without you, this would not be possible. Uh, They are Lupita Valenz, Bradley Davies, Laura, RX, A. Nicole, Manny, Travis Lieberman, Cherry, Ben Marshall, Dallas Don. LD50 Seattle, MJ, K Glitter Vulcan, Meredith Waters, Bethany Swoveland, C O'Donnell, Adam H, Larson8669, Karante, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, Jacob, Michael O'Connor, Zach Packard, Todd Cravens, Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, Day, JD, sorry, Jav, Ian Froes, James Cully, Michael Akakan, Ethan, Fitz Madrid, Ed Coulthard, Johnny Lafleur, Clayton Taylor, Mike Barone, Ben, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, The Generate Zero Alpha, Jojo Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Amy R, Rubicon, Frank Austin, Amelia Me, Nawaiz, Christina Rivetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Moody Al Rashid, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, JL, Sebastian from the Discord, Stephen Davila, Anthony Kabarak, Dan Dunham, Fletcher Tate, Chad Walker, Diana Govanek, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick, Emily Emily Molly, sorry, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock, and Moritz Zumbo. Thank you all very much for keeping this flowing. To be honest, thanks so much. Um, I know you're probably going to think, when's he going to cover Israel and Palestine? Don't worry, I am very soon, but I could see all this happening. I knew this wasn't just going to be a flash in the pan, so I've just waited, sitting down, working out the best way to do it, because it's obviously a very contentious topic. But yeah, next week, uh, Israel-Palestine. Thanks for listening.